welcome to the podcast that's all about solutions. If you're tired of complaining about tyranny and you want to take action to create a freer world, this is the place for you. Join us as we ask, what then must we do? I am here today again with Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the president of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Um, I asked you to come on the show today to talk about immigration. And mm-hmm. I know you've been, uh, like me, a longtime um, libertarian, advocate of individual rights, enemy of the state, all that. And you've recently had sort of a change of heart with regard to immigration. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I think this time last year, I was on John Stossel's show on national television on Fox, you know, passionately arguing for open borders. In fact, I think I've been for open borders since I was in college. Um, I, My friend and I, my friend was running for the Texas state legislature, and he was a libertarian. He came to me, he said, I can't possibly support uh, open borders. Uh, I would simply never get elected. And I said, well, that means you're just selling out your principles for uh, for power, and that's evil in my mind. So we actually had a you know a breakup of our friendship over the issue. So I mean, just to be clear, and also I've written uh, about the issue for a very long time. It seemed to me that closed borders was connected to protectionism, which was in turn related to xenophobia, and racialist policies and, you know, the aspiration of a, a homogeneous state, which is, you know, a, a demographically, religiously, linguistically homogeneous state, which is illiberal and so on. So I had it all worked out in my mind, right? I had it all figured out uh, until recently. And then, you know, at some point, <laughs> how does it work? I think facts just sort of slam down on your head to the point that you just can't, uh, you can't dig your way out of it. And um, this wave of, of migration that we've seen over the last five years, um, and I, I'm not, I'm not prepared to, to yet to go back in time and understand how long I was wrong. But it's clear that uh, the, over the last five years, what's happened is the immigration system is being used uh, to manipulate uh, political outcomes. And and that is an extremely wicked way to use demographics against the people. Uh, and that is exactly what's going on. So in other words, this is this is another way that the state is attacking us. In the same way they tax us, inflate the money supply, regulate our businesses, give us stay-home orders or whatever, uh, they're also doing this as a way of destabilizing democracy and pillaging the public purse um, and demoralizing us in the in the process and dispossessing um, the citizens of the country, the, the, the alleged owners of this system. I mean, just by way of review, I mean, the idea of government and a free society is that the citizens control. There's some relationship there between the government and the people, that citizens have some impact on the laws under which they live, right? I mean, that's sort of the idea. Do you actually believe that, though? I mean, do you really think that's how it operates? No, it's not how it operates, but that's the ideal. I mean that was that was the ideal is that it was hatched out during the Enlightenment and and I still believe I mean in some broad sense that there's no government that could possibly be legitimate no system of managing the commons let's get away from the term government no system of managing the commons could possibly be legitimate unless it has the consent of the governed I mean so there there has to be some uh, relationship there. Uh, this, I think, is what the Declaration of Independence says, and uh, and I believe in that. Uh, but when the government turns against the people, it has myriad ways of doing it. And I did not understand that manipulating demographics in this sort of shocking ways um, could be a part of that. But that's exactly what's going on, and it's it's a very very cynical. And once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Uh, basically, it's that if you if if the government can identify a, a population of people that they can cause to migrate and manipulate those people for purposes of 
uh, doling out of public benefits or for election outcomes, um, uh, they might use those people as fodder in a political war against the people. And uh, now, uh, one response to that is, oh, that's ridiculous. You can't possibly say that every Syrian, Algerian, Zimbabwean, you know, Venezuelan who pours across the border illegally is going to be a Biden supporter. And that's true. I cannot say that. Uh, but these people are very clever, and they're they're dealing with the law of averages, right? So it doesn't it doesn't matter. Uh, all all they need is a relative certainty that fifty one percent of them are going to uh, vote for their way, and there's there's no way to de deny that. I mean, just based on the empirical uh, records here. Um, uh, so this is not disdainful towards minorities. It's not putting down people based on their. Uh, you know, their foreignness or alienness. It's just a matter of alerting people to the fact that the ruling class that's currently managing the administrative state uh, is making a very good bet that by flooding uh, the, the country with as many immigrants as possible, they're going to be able to affect election outcomes, which keep them permanently in power. And you could say this, you could make the same argument about, um, you know, welfare those those who support welfare policies making use of ghetto populations you know you create there's a population that's now dependent on exactly. these policies that you've created they're now your supporters they're now going to mm -hmm. keep voting for those policies so you know what you're saying isn't even necessarily a statement about you know where you're from it's more what are your incentives what, what do you do you have incentives to keep supporting these policies and yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you're looking at this as the 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 motivation for um, basically kind of getting rid of immigration controls at the border. I mean, that's kind of what what it is. You're saying yeah. the the motivation is really elections. It's getting getting voters. What yeah. about other things like? I mean, some of the things that that we've seen in Europe too, um, like social destabilization. Do you think that's wow. deliberate? Do you think that's something that that people are trying to create here? Um, well, uh, I think the answer to that is yes. I don't understand the European contact, uh, situation very well. And I let, let me say also this, that um, most normal people are incapable of even conceiving of a, a, a deeply malicious uh, aspiration for society, culture, and politics. Like, we, we don't understand the joker. Right, we we watch the movie, and we're intrigued by it, and we think that is one weird guy. <laughs> um, but we don't imagine that the Joker, you know, becomes the ruling class, you know, and and puts together major organizations like the World Economic Forum with tentacles in every administrative state apparatus, and then the Joker style theory is preached in all the universities, and then broadcast out to the mainstream media, and then the administrative state works with tech companies to block people who disagree with the Joker. Like, we, we can't even imagine. It that seems ridiculous. Yeah, it seems ridiculous. And yet, I'm sorry to say that it seems like that's basically a good description of what's going on. And 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 I think this is uh, mostly coming about I my theory. And anybody can disagree with me and tell me that it goes back to the War of the Roses. I don't care. But my theory is that this this attitude towards destroying uh, the social order we have came about because of the rise of Boris Johnson uh, in the UK, uh, who was uh, whose mandate was to implement Brexit, which destroyed, uh, which was a direct attack on the idea of the European Union, forced European Union, the creation of a supranational government in Brussels to manage the whole of Europe. Yeah. Uh, originally started as a good aspiration, but it, 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 it um, you know, a restoration of sort of late medieval, you know, styles of, of unity or whatever, but, but yeah, that's but not also like, is. no, when you talk about accountability and relationship to the people, like yeah. no accountability there, no, not even democratic process, no. like the no, most undemocratic institution you can imagine. Right. And, and it's really evil because they use a kind of a liberal idea of, of, of the of c c c European Commonwealth, you know, which de definitely existed in, say, um, at the end of the religious wars, um, the 16th 
17th century. But, um, but and so they use that, invoke that idea to, to build a supranational state that's illiberal. Right. And and so and so Boris Johnson comes to power in the UK and says, Well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you Brexit and 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 take the um uh, England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland out of the European Union, and that was seen to be a reactionary move. And so there was a an attempt to destroy that movement. And and despite the people's uh, multiple times voting for Brexit, mm -hmm. uh like these people are reactionaries, they're dangerous, and they were all smeared as racists and you know the, all the usual, yeah. the usual bromides. And and that happened at the same time Trump came to power here. And and the rise of Trump in 2016 was, I think, uh led to a kind of there was an existential crisis for for the ruling class. And and I don't need to qualify here that I'm not. A fan of Trump. I mean, I wrote a whole book against it. I've been railing against the guy since 2015. I mean, I have all people. I mean, I had the first English language article uh, explaining that Trump's ideology, if he has one, is fascistic. So, but the point is that he was not supposed to be president, that Hillary Clinton was supposed to be president. So they looked at the outcome of that election, said democracy is broken, the people are rotten, uh, everybody's an insurrectionist. And <clears throat> like some new people. Uh, yeah, and 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 we have to get rid of democracy. So one of the strangest things about all this stuff is that you you hear now people um, in uh, you know major media and blue state spokespeople, NPR or whatever, complaining that Trump is anti democratic. Uh, that's just projection. I mean, they they've turned against democracy because it it generated the wrong outcomes. Right. So uh, so. Uh, so ever since 2016, we've seen just this barrage of of attacks uh, against people that are questioning the ruling class uh, Joker style uh, agenda. And you know, ever since then, we've seen the rise of DEI and ESG, and then try to stick us all in an electric vehicle to give us 15 minute cities, and then locking us down. Oh, stay home orders! You can't go to church for for two Christmases in a row, and. Um, your kid can't go to school, and that's all because of the great pestilence, uh, which is Trump and Boris Johnson. And so, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, so this waves of immigration is just another piece of that. It's not the exception; it is part of the agenda. And 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 you know, I, um, I I have to say, I became. My my first time to become aware of this, and and I, it's, it's weird because once you see it, you can't unsee it. But my first time to become aware of this was when I visited my mother in Texas in the spring of uh, 2021. And I expected everybody in Texas to be all upset about the lockdowns and school closures and, and the closing of, of malls and businesses and everything, which is plenty to be upset about. But I couldn't get anybody to talk about that. All they wanted to talk about was the disastrous uh, state of civilization by virtue of the immigration. Well, I was shocked by this because I hadn't really, really thought of it that way, and I didn't think of my mother and her friends and everything as kind of like th these are people I had previously put in a box of status fascists, you know, and and yet here I'm hearing normal people in a genuine heartfelt meltdown over something the media was not reporting on at all, and I remember thinking at the time, I need to figure this out. Like it's not enough just to throw out my, you know, hit them on the head with a book. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to figure this out. And and so here we are, three years later, and 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 I I finally have just said, okay, I'm I'm just not I'm just not going to go along with this. I mean, this is this is statism. So when when you talk with your with your mother and other people in Texas, for the people living there, um, what's the big deal? Why why are they upset? Well, it it uh, part of the problem is that the perception that they're losing control over the uh, the rules under which they live. You know that um, that the their vote is being um, taken away from them. And and you know what's interesting about this, Brittany, is that it's technically illegal for uh, undocumented. Uh, migrants to vote in federal elections 
or mm-hmm. state elections. Um, but it's a question of of the verif- verification. You know, what is the method by which you're verifying people's identities and their rights to assist in the creation of laws under which we live? And those vary widely from state to state. And there's no question that the dominant goal, and this has been, I feel like such an idiot for not seeing this, it's been going on for years, that the goal of these of the blue staters and sort of ruling class wokesters in general is to uh, water these rules down ever more. I mean, Texas passed a law through the legislature that said, look, if you're going to vote, you've got to be able to provide identity. Well, Right. There was total hysteria. I mean, like everybody's screaming, no, this is racist, this is evil. So it's like, wait, what? You're, I mean, I I can't even buy a pack of cigarettes, you know, in the convenience store without, you know, showing my identity card. What is wrong with you people? Yeah. It never made any sense. But the, the goal is to water it down to the point that they can manipulate the outcome. So, for example, in Arizona, I, I mean, Elon Musk has been all over this. Uh, the standard has been that you can vote in federal elections. You can't vote in in, uh, uh, state elections without showing verification, but you can vote in federal elections um, uh, if if you check the box that says you're a U.S. citizen on an absentee ballot. That's that's all all it it really requires. Just check the box. So now you've got anywhere between 10 and 20 million people. We have no idea how many have come over the last four years that are in a position. They don't even have to do it themselves. You see, I mean, you can get right. election election workers and non government organizations and these citizen and these activist groups and everything else just to do it for them, just to lean in. And next thing you know, you're flooding uh, red states with with blue state uh, ballots, uh, you know, unbeknownst to the, the migrants. But but then but then you count them up and go, well, there's that many people here. There's this many ballots. It makes sense. And then. And and then it's at the point if you if you call voter fraud that everybody says oh this disinformation and now the media is coming after you and so on so I mean this is this is real and I guess my point is under pure libertarian theory we favor uh, free movement of of people right. uh, of course but um, part of that has to involve uh, certain certain rules and one of the rules is that you can't. Uh, uh, I can't move to Japan, for example, and and g- get on welfare and and bring all my friends in and affect the outcome of elections. Okay, so that that I mean, if, and if you did that, uh, you would seriously anger uh, the population, to say the least, right? I mean, there would be a mass movement to elect yeah. an authoritarian leader to get rid of me and my friends. Uh, and there's no world in which that makes any sense, but that's precisely what's going on here. Um, and and let me just back up slightly. I'm, I know I'm talking too much. If you just want to cut me off, too much. But you can cut me off. But oh no, you keep going. Um, I don't think F. A. Hayek's uh, credentials as a as a good liberal uh, are in question. Good libertarian liberal, but in I'd argue uh, with that. But I don't well, on that tangent. Well, when it when it comes to certain aspects of the commons, that's true. I mean, it was yeah. there's one bad chapter in Road Surfed. But but just in general, I mean, he's, you know. Um, and in 1974, he wrote a letter to the London Times uh, over a, a question of uh migration. And in this case, it was concerned uh um Muslim uh migration, which was which was really growing in the UK. And he said he said something interesting. He said, um, there is a danger when uh, there's 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 too much uh, migration c- coming in that um, is of a different sort than that doesn't mix well with a with a, with a, with the history, uh, religion, and language of of the of the host territory, and that he says I don't like this, but it does whip people up into uh, anger. And it pushes a lot of buttons on the part of the people. And this can lead to disaster. It can lead to uh, authoritarian outcomes. So in the name of preserving liberty, I would strongly suggest that the UK uh, go about this uh, as rationally as as possible for for fear of repeating 
um, disasters from the past. And the disaster that was in his mind, in particular, was the interwar period in Germany, where he believed that the 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 type of migration that went on during the Weimar period was uh, seemingly meritorious and virtuous and uh, creating sanctuaries for all these people, um, uh, ultimately ended up in t triggering the population and scapegoating the immigrants for uh, for everything bad unfairly. Uh, everything that bad was ha happening in the country. And that, that of course, led the, to the calamities that we know about. So that was Hayek's uh, mm. view. Yeah. So mm. reading that kind of struck me. Um, that's interesting because you're not arguing for you're not really arguing for 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 barriers at the border. What you're what you're doing is forecasting very likely uh, political outcomes based on your read of history, and that's a very different kind of project. Yeah, um, Rothbard observed the same thing um, after 1989 when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart. Yeah. Uh, he took notes and he was a very astute observer. And uh, by the way, I don't need to tell you, I dismissed all this at the time. I thought, oh, Rothbard's selling out. Rothbard's doing the same crazy things. Yeah. But what he actually observed was that uh, sporadically over, over the previous uh, uh, 50, 50 years prior to the whole Soviet experiment falling apart, that that Moscow had invaded, uh, had engaged in a systematic attempt to colonize, permanently colonize with its residents, um, uh, with with Russians proper, you know, all of the territories it had conquered as right. a way of securing a permanent uh, kind of political. Uh, China control. did the same thing. China did the same thing in minority areas in Tibet. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. One thing I'll say. So one big issue for me is. Um, you know, putting this in the context of libertarianism, a desire for free societies, is, you know, we talk about what's going on right now as an immigration issue. To me, it's it's much more than what's happening at the border right now is not immigration. I mean, I've been an immigrant. I've I've gone to other countries to live and work. And never has someone been been waiting there for me with a bus ticket or a plane ticket or hotel, you know, here's your hotel room, we're going to put you up and, you know, tell you how to vote and all this stuff. So as you say, there's a lot more going on. This is not just open borders. This is not just free immigration. This is a yeah. whole project yeah. of bringing people in, subsidizing them. You know, yeah. we're paying for this at taxpayer expense, subsidizing these people to come in and you know, do what um, you know impact demographics, impact voter um, out voting outcomes, that kind of thing. Yep. But I don't think it's fair to say that it's just immigration. It, yep. that, it's, that it's just open borders. I agree um, with that, and this is part of the complication. Uh, we have the U.S. right now has, in reality, in reality the most restrictive immigration policy we've had in 100 years. Right, so after if, if If you're uh, Norwegian, Swedish, German, or Taiwanese, or uh, the English, or Australian, uh, yeah, um, there's almost no way you can get residency in this country. I mean, you can get temporary visas, but then they're going to kick you out. And even then, they're making you get COVID shots, which, you know, to, to even to, to, to apply for residency. So it's extremely hard to get an H-1B visa, get E3s, uh, to get green cards. It's very, very, very difficult. The quotas are very tight, much lower. Trump lowered all these things. Mm. And uh, so uh, immigration has met, to this country has been never more difficult. At the same time, uh, you've got federal agents going into Texas and, and actively and coercively preventing Texas border guards from securing the, the border against actual um, having the, the country sacked. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's... And you can go back in history, and this is what it means for, like, if you look up, you know, what does it mean for a country to be sacked? This is it. So this is this is not the carrying out. They're not, they're not coming in and, like, 
attacking people's homes and, you know, vandalizing and pillaging and all that. That's not happening. Well, in New York, um, they're living in the finest hotels. Yeah. And also, um, uh, many authorities in the city of New York have pleaded with residents to open up their homes. <laughs> and and also, uh, of New Yorkers been, are going to say no. I know New Yorkers. Public, but schools have been canceled in many parts of the country. That. Uh, to so that uh, the migrants can be housed in the public schools. So, yeah, so you, in a way, it's more, it's like sacking, but with the active cooperation of, of the, the federal government. Yeah, that's and, and I think you're right. Getting back to the Joker analogy, I think it's it's hard for people to recognize when their own government is at war with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for for those of us who kind of recognize the nature of the state and, and that what it does, what it does is kind of always at war with us because it's always at odds with what free people would be doing, you know, without that coercion. But this is like a really dramatic example of that. Um, it's a very intense and dramatic example. It's so dramatic that I'm, I should stop doing my mea culpas, but I'm deeply embarrassed that I, I, I went basically a long time without, without seeing it. Um, I, I, ironically, I think one of the problems that libertarians have is that they underestimate the evil of the government. <laughs> Yeah. Look at how they responded to COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. underestimate. It's all, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's inefficient. You know, they're doing things just a little bit, not quite right. It's, it's, they, they need my advice. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't see the, the sheer yeah. magnitude of yeah. that evil. It's yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, let me address uh, something uh, since you're so indulgent um, and we're focused on this arcane areas that, of libertarianism, but uh, my friend Alex Norasta Norast at uh, Cato wrote a big piece the other day uh, on the subject, which, which generally sided with the Biden administration. Um, and I'm not of the mindset that just dismisses arguments out of hand because they come to the wrong conclusions. I like to dig through um, intelligent argument and see if it's right or wrong. So I read his piece very carefully, and he makes two uh, really important claims. The first one, and I, I would like to take these one at a time. The first one is that the reason for the increase in illegalization is, illegal immigration, is the shutdown of legal paths. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, my thought about that is that there's a grain of truth to that. Um. And it goes back to the border response after 9-11. So it, I grew up in a, in a border city in Texas, in El Paso. And it was very, you know, there was a constant stream of people from Mexico coming in, uh, doing day jobs, and then going back at night. And it was, it was very cooperative. We didn't have walls. Nobody cared about this stuff. And it was just, you know, high, just walk through the border, that's it. You know, it was no big deal, and everything was fine. There's nothing wrong. But after 9-11, suddenly we cracked down on the border, so it made that impossible. Uh, made that sort of day work impossible, and and so now you you create an incentive to break the law to get a come across and stay. Yeah. Okay. If you don't have open borders, then you have every. I mean, it's ironic, but closed borders actually incentivize yeah. people to break the law. So there's I'm there's so an sorry. element of of truth there. I don't know how we go back. Um, I mean, why is there such a push to build a wall? I mean, we've we've lived on the border of Mexico for, you know, since 1834 or whatever it is. And whenever Texas declared independence and never had a wall, well, well, why is this going on? Well, I think it all traces to the response to 9-11. We stopped allowing day workers and work permits and free flow of people back and forth in friendly relations and, and suddenly treated everybody on the other side of the border as an enemy. So, uh, so, um, so, so, so for 25 years, this has been going on that people just, you know, find every means to get across. And once they get across, they're like, oh, thank God I'm home free. And then they stay. So uh, that's new. So to some extent, Alex's point has a point there. Um, and he's also right that illegal immigration has never been more difficult. Okay. So 
I'll concede that. But what that, as an explanation, uh, misses is the sheer scale. I mean, that that's he, he, he nowhere is coming to terms with the sheer scale. And I'm I'm not talking about as a percentage of the population. That's a, one way that people say isn't nothing unusual because you look back at 1890. You know, you look at the total population relative to the immigrant population. We're much lower now than we were. It's all ridiculous. We've never had 20 million people come across the border undocumented. Uh, in the span of of three years, I mean, this is just uh, is, is that a legitimate is that a legitimate number? Is it twenty million? Uh, it depends on who you believe. I mean, like nobody knows for sure, but it's certainly between ten and twenty, or it could be as high as twenty two. Those are high high twenty two is a high number, uh, but five is uh, excessively low number. So nobody knows the actual numbers. But uh, but that but this we've never seen anything like this. So I don't think Alex's point. I think there's a lot of validity to his argument. Right. In the abstract, but it doesn't address the reality on the ground now. Right. Uh, the second thing he claims is that everybody who's coming here is coming here to work. Doesn't seem to be the case. I I don't know. I mean, that this painting with a very broad broad brush, I think um, everybody could be put to work. But the problem is we have extremely strict uh, rules yeah. on employing these people. So... You know, the same thing happened in 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 France and Germany. You know, after mm -hmm. uh, the Iraq War, when they faced this gigantic migrant crisis, they had migrants all over the place, but none of them were allowed to work because of the union rules. Right. So, so you're bringing in these, as they say, fighting age males uh, mm -hmm. by millions, and not giving them uh, work opportunities. So even if they wanted to work, they can't work except yeah. under the under the table. Yeah, so, so it's a whole, it's a whole different thing from the kind of the immigration that you know that sort of that built this country, oh, um, yeah. that built the current population. That was people coming in, having to make their own way. Um, mm -hmm. This this whole thing of just importing a bunch of people and either you know in the case of Europe not allowing them to work or mm -hmm. subsidizing them so they don't have to. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing. You know, you can you could still argue, I guess, that that's a good thing, but um, it's not the same thing as just normal immigration. It's a very different animal. And people have an existential fear of it, and that's why it's the number one issue in the country, because they they believe, and I think rightly so, this is going to permanently change the character of the country. It's going to permanently entrench a blue majority. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, one of the reasons this has become such a priority for the Biden administration in particular is that after COVID lockdowns, there's mass wave of exodus from, from blue states to red. And yeah. which is giving red states um, new seats in Congress when the next census is taken and all the, the the reallocations of political power go around. So we've got a huge shift from blue to red in this yeah. country. I'm so, one of those people. Yeah. So how how are you going to counter that? I mean, what's what's your plan to do with gigantic population shifts away from status policies? towards freedom policies if you want to preserve statism you gotta get new people in to yeah. to to counter that and and to flood the red zone as much as possible and that is precisely what's happening so uh, this is uh, um you know the policies of uh, texas and florida to uh take the migrants and put them on on buses and planes and send them to martha's vineyard in new york and you know chicago yeah. is uh an attempt to foil that and it's it's been you know interestingly successful in some ways because that i mean I, i'm sorry libertarians are totally behind on all this stuff this war is taking place uh because texas knows exactly what the biden administration is up to and florida knows exactly what the biden administration is up to so they're they're attempting to you know it's 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 uh it's but a there are other people yes. there are other people involved in busing in busing migrants too i mean there's like ngos yeah, and folks, and I don't really understand. Well, they're taking them to red red zones, right? I mean, okay, the, yeah, that they're, so, they're dropping the ones, them. Who's taking them to New York? Who's is that? Is so that that's that's Texas and Florida sending them? Okay, okay, uh, uh, on buses to and New York is desperately trying to keep them out, and you know, with weird rules like uh, no buses can uh, with undocumented immigrants can can come here between this hour and that hour. You know, uh, it's. It's pretty interesting. But then, who's who's paying the hotel bills for those people? Oh, the taxpayers, yeah. But I mean, through through what? Like, is it the city of New York saying, yeah. "Okay, they're here now"? Will mm. wow, yeah. okay, yeah. So they're putting them up in uh, nice in, hotels, uh, very nice hotels. So, 
and you know, I have to say, you know, my my views on this have been building for a while, and it's like I'm a little stupid. Um, but one thing that um, is hard for me to ignore are, are is facts. Okay, so um, Manhattan today is nothing like what it was. You know, 10 I'm years ago. I'm hearing that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. We go to Midtown. It's like. Uh, first of all, it's extremely dangerous, especially at night. But there's just zombies, you know, uh, falling over the streets, and and uh, uh, the whole thing is like a dystopian movie because, you know, once you get um, to the Central Park area and above, you get to the upper Upper East Side and Upper West Side and that kind of thing. You know, you can there's safety there, but uh, but if you have to uh, make your way out of those areas. Um, through to midtown you know to take a, a trip or something like that it's just it's like going through the jungle and people are yes. increasingly terrified so new york is to be a, a a city of of unrelenting mobility within manhattan yeah uh, it's, it no longer is people are terrified wow, wow. Their communities that's okay let me take a step back um we're both anti-state we're both against the institution of the state what do you think what do you imagine that immigration would look like in a world without a state so yeah this gets into a complicated area because um i mean are we saying that there's without a state anywhere but does that mean without nations? I mean, would the nation disappear without the state? Um, and that's a big question. Um, Mises himself addressed it in his 1919 book, Nation, State, and Economy. He makes a distinction between the nation and the state. And he theorizes that there is such a thing as a nation uh, because there's a perception that there are are features of life that are common to people okay so so culturally based well there's certain commons in any society that are unavoidable you can't like even in a, in a private subdivision there's commons right i mean there's sidewalks there's streets even if they're private uh yeah. there's air you breathe uh there's your neighbor across the street um, there are certain things we we have in common, and the purpose of nationhood is to somehow uh, regulate those commons, to come to some kind of consensus about how we want to live. I mean, can I can I defecate in a bucket and throw it out my window on the ground, and what impact does that have on the health of other people? I mean, these these questions, libertarians don't like to talk about them, but I mean, just like in the real world, uh, things like how we're going to manage our our common lives. Uh, really does matter. So um, uh, the idea of of a nation has many pieces, and th they involve um, religion. They involve yes, race. They involve language. Um, they involve uh, shared histories, uh, shared dynasties, uh, a, a, a shared sense sense of peopleness. Which, which can be independent of race and language, okay? It can be independent of religion. It, mm -hmm. these, these are all, I mean, I think um, uh, Renan or the French theorists identified five possible things that constitute nationhood. So um, um, you're, you're, you're likely, you can get rid of one or two or even three. You're not going to get rid of all five. And if you do get rid of all five, then your sense of nationhood disappears um, nation is is just a, a, a reality for all of recorded human history. That that sense of rules to regulate our commons, um, and you know, with that uh, comes a sense of of who we are and who we're going to include. Um, and whether that's done through private means or state means, you know, I just don't know. Now we have states now. So the question is, am I suggesting to the state what it should do? And uh, not really, uh, because I don't really know the answers to that. And we've had long debates in American history about this. And we've had, um, at the original constitution, the states themselves would, would regulate 
uh, who was admitted to be citizenship, which is a reasonable solution, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because states are organic political communities. By the way, Mises's view of nationhood is that it all comes down to language primarily. I think it's maybe huh. a little distorted, but it's pretty interesting. Um, but the American idea was to decentralize the decision, decision as low as possible, that that was the best possible solution. Well, that went away. And then we got birthright citizenship uh, much, much later. And then, um, which, you know, was designed to right the wrong of the, of the tremendous evil of, of of slavery, right? I mean, that was just, which is the great, the great evil of the American experiment. I mean, everything was just beautiful about the American founding. Uh, and then there's this one horrible Thing. Yeah. And and it had such an impact on on you know what followed. I mean, it's just terrifying the extent to which so much of American politics from the founding all the way through the Civil War and after and even now revolves around that one great evil. I mean, it's it's unbelievable when you think about just like how could such a, a beautiful experiment be so wrecked. But anyway, um, and the, and the 19, after the great immigration of the 19, uh, 1880s and 1890s, which was not without problems, by the way, um, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, this is glorious Ireland and Italy and the world comes here and everything's wonderful. No, that gave birth to exactly what Hayek predicted, a, a kind of reactionary movement. Uh, and when, when, when Darwin's book called... Um, uh, the Descent of Man came out, and you know he was an earnest thinker and so on. But uh, but this book was a, a calamity because the book um, said that human beings, you know, have to curate themselves uh, to avoid avoid devolution. Uh, like we need to evolve constantly, which means we need to regulate our breeding patterns. And so that set off a kind of a, a wave of panic that led eventually to eugenics, to racialist thinking. The entire American upper class was converted to extremist, you know, cranky race-based theories about the mm-hmm. future of civilization. So that was one of the costs of that wave of immigration, is that it set that in motion. By 1923, we had uh, the imposition of laws, Calvin Coolidge signed it, um, that was <laughs> very very strange and very strict about immigration that it basically favored Anglo-Saxons and deprecated Slavs, uh, Southern Italians, and Jews in particular. Okay, so that was 1923. Wow. And yeah, it was quite catastrophic. That that law was quite catastrophic um, and bound to create a reaction. So, you know, when Jews started lean during the great diaspora um german occupied territories to try to find safety they couldn't find it in america because of u.s immigration law because right. in those days jews weren't white people they were considered asiatic and foreign and poisonous mm-hmm. by the american ruling class okay yeah. yeah so after world war ii then there was a reaction to that and then we got the 1965 immigration bill which picked up the same racial themes, except reverse them in the other direction, which is crazy, right? That's even, that's just as bad as 1965, it's just as bad as 1923. It's just that it was the opposite policy. Yeah. Which gave rise to a new reactionary movement, you know, what are you doing to our country, you know, gradually over time. So I think both these, these approaches are wrong. I mean, it's, 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 Look, I'm again. I'm not advising the state, and I don't think the state is open to good advice anyway. But if you had, let's say, a responsible leadership of a nation, it would seek to uh, bring people in who uh, were uh, seeking to work um, that were not criminals. Uh, that uh, every intuition says. You know, we're going to contribute to the national well-being and not annoy residents to the point that they pursue reactionary uh, movements and things like this. Um, you would build a nation based on what is good for the peace and prosperity and uh, domestic tranquility of all, 
right? That's what you would do. Not with some weird agenda to get rid of the Slavs, get rid of the Jews, you know, uh, or down with white people. We have way too many of them. All right. So you, you can't, you can't use the immigration system for, for, for demographic curation of the population. It, it should be, there should be a goal to bring people here, uh, who can, can, can acculturate and, and make a, a contribution to the to the well-being of all. I mean, that seems to be the, the answer. It seems to me, though, that, you know, knowing everything I know about the state and how it operates, it seems to me that there's a fundamental problem with incentives mm-hmm. that a nation, I shouldn't say a nation state, but a, a, any, ent- any state entity, any monopoly on force has incentives that are not aligned with the people living under it mm-hmm. and not aligned with, you know, if you want to call it the greater good or or the community, mm-hmm. it, they're just not aligned. They don't have the same incentives. So when right. I look at like, you know, how, how would you have a nation state that, you know, that does this well? Um, it's hard to imagine that working. Um, it's hard to imagine that not becoming something like what we're seeing now where yeah. those powers are used to gain power for itself mm-hmm. and ultimately harm the people living. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but uh, the thing is that it has, there are various places around the world and experiences where this seems to have been handled at least temporarily pretty well, you yeah. know, uh, uh, Japan, South Korea, Sweden, but Sweden gave in, you know, at some point they were just right. intimidated, intimidated by, um, you know, all the propaganda and everything and, and, and opened up the floodgates. Um, yeah, by the way, I, I can't believe this is me talking, just putting this out. <laughs> well, and so, and that's another thing I wanted to, to just bring up is the one thing. So again, I'm, I'm completely anti-state. Um, and yet the one thing that gives me pause is my experience in Japan. I lived there for mm-hmm. like two years yep. and what you're saying is absolutely right. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of the places in the world where, yeah, they actually, the government actually does does uh, they they don't, it does, it's corrupted in some ways in in that in that country. Of there course, is, all know? governments are corrupt. Yeah. yeah, but as far as you know, the kind of immigration policy you're talking about, mm-hmm. they do seem to have done that. And yep. what I think is really hard for probably I'm going to say any American who hasn't like lived overseas, what it's really hard to appreciate is the depth and the value of what's preserved there. Um, Japanese culture is it's cohesive in a way that no culture, no subculture in America is that it's, it's, I mean, it kind of defies description, but it's like you're in this place and after you kind of get to know it and you, you understand how things work, you realize that you're surrounded by people who all share the same values and who you can, you know, you leave your you, um your camera on a on a bench on in the subway, someone's gonna make a real effort to bring that back to you. Um sure. there are just certain things you that you can predict that will happen. Yeah. Um yeah. and there's yeah, that so that's you know, again, Brittany, that's when I said the regulation of the commons, that's what I'm referring to. Right. Uh, but just, we haven't just, had that in this country. We haven't had that. Or, uh, we have like a much watered down version of what that is. Right. I think if you haven't experienced how amazing it can be to live in a society that functions well and where mm-hmm. the the commons are are respected by everyone, where everyone kind of respects the common space and respects each other. You know, if you don't if you don't know that, then you don't know what you've lost. Uh, D- Japan's a unique situation, or maybe it's not unique. It's just oh, and by the way, so let's just uh, kind of uh, look a little further into this because, um, again, there's a, a fundamentalist idea within our world to always come up with a a, a clear answer to everything. Like, so let's just let's yeah. just uh, explore the question: Should um, Political communities aspire to be homogeneous or heterogeneous. Okay, that's kind of an interesting question, um, and I think the answer is that it all depends on the organic development of the community. So, um, in the Middle East, 
and the Mediterranean, uh, mixed populations have been part of the experience of the region. Mm-hmm. And that's been true for thousands of years. And nobody can imagine it otherwise, and everybody's delighted by it. So people speak three languages, um, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity have coexisted, not without problems, but largely coexisted for for a thousand years, uh, many thousands of years, actually. Mm-hmm. And Those problems um, are mostly exacerbated when the state steps in and tries to Force. Yeah, yeah. When when one group seeks to become dominant, then it becomes a problem. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, and dominant and illiberal. Yeah. Um, uh, as has happened uh, variously throughout history, but but heterogeneity is just part. Of, and and Americans are used to heterogeneity too. Mm-hmm. When the original settlers came over here, they attempted to d- divide themselves up into tribes. Right. So. Rhode Island was, uh, or Maryland was, was weirdly Catholic, and you know, Virginia was, was Anglican, and you know, uh, you know, there's, and and they were very trying to curate the popular their political communities based on religion, and and then that that devolved into sl- slave owning versus not slave owning, which was unbelievably wicked, mm-hmm. um, but but eventually over time. There grew to be a, a very comfortable heterogeneity, and you've lived in New York. You know what that feels like, and and most people are, are fine with that. I mean, yeah. um, it, it it seems to work for us. But there are other other political communities that have always been traditionally homogeneous, and that is, you know, the essence of what it means for them to live and experience the world that they do. So uh, every American is from somewhere, and if you ask anybody in Japan where you're from, they will sell, tell you. They're from Japan. It's very simple. They're from Japan. Now, Americans can't imagine that, right? No, where are your ancestors from? <laughs> Japan. Right? I mean, that's it. That's yeah. the final. Americans can't even imagine that. So so every experience is different. And I think we need to kind of, kind of recognize that, you know, that there needs to be some sense of deference to the prevailing organic experiences of the people and how they've come to develop a social order that is peaceful, leads to tranquility, and it pours out its blessings on uh, the most possible people at any one time. I mean, that, and then what that looks like exactly, you cannot say a priori. You really do have to look at the history and the uh, specifics of the, of the circumstances of time and place of a particular area. Yeah, I mean, I don't have an answer either. I, especially yeah. give, given my experience in Japan, it's like I can't, I don't have an answer. But I'm pretty sure it has something to do with incentives, and that things get worse. The to the extent that you have an entity that is based on force and that is not really accountable to anyone, the right. the more that has an influence in society. I just think whether it's immigration or anything else, I think things are going to be worse. Um, and as we're seeing right now, yeah. you know, immigration policy is being weaponized to attack us. That's right. And, you know, as anytime you impose a, you know, exogenously imposed rationalistic construct of, of demographic ideals on a country where it's, it's not part of its, its experiences and history, you're engaged in a kind of an act of violence. So, uh, for example, let's just say I, I dreamed up the idea that there's no way America is, is going to survive without um, being ruled by a Spanish monarch. Okay. And I somehow get control of the system of government and make uh, King uh, Maximilian <laughs> you know, the second uh, the monarch of America. Now, how, how sustainable is that? How long is that going to last? Is that actually going to be good for the country? There's no t- conditions under which that is a good idea. Uh, in, reimposing the monarchy in Brazil uh, might actually have some plausible f- effect. Right. Taking away the monarchy from England would be itself a kind of an act of violence. Too, unless it was done. No, at this point, I think they're kind of sick of it. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's not a good Maybe there's no good monarch. Actually, there's one good monarch. If they if they took away the monarchy of Liechtenstein, okay, that would yeah. be an act of violence, right? So, yeah. So uh, there there needs to be some some deference, and uh, you know, if you're imposing uh, heterogeneity and of politically participating citizens in Japan would be uh, a malicious act that would 
profoundly disrupt society, but imposing uh, uh, political equality of access and at a homogeneous population in America would itself be an act of violence. So it 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 there has to be there has to be a way in which the uh, immigration system is is deferential to the ways that a political community has learned to organize itself given its its history and understanding of who they are. Yeah, I mean I also feel like America has this unique problem of it's just too big. I mean it's I don't I don't think I don't think it's legitimate yeah. to try and make a country of 350 million people to to try and pretend that that's one culture. Yeah. Or that's one even one if you want to call it a nation. Isn't it crazy? And we've been doing this for 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 a long time. Years, 200 years basically. Yeah. Um like when I don't I don't know what year the US made Hawaii a state. Yeah, either. 40s or something like that. But suddenly all Americans were being taught um certain Hawaiian words like aloha or something, you know, and, and learning hula dances and stuff like that. So, you know, we have this funny way of of incorporating, you know, our, our empire, rolling our empire back into the <laughs> it's, it's silly. really it's silly. It's, it's silly. We yeah, the 13 colonies, you know, maybe you know, mutual defense uh, cooperative, you know, but but uh, but the way the the American empire has has grown, it's 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 shocking, and and you know, I mean, God knows, it's probably unviable. I mean, there's something in all of us that that wants there to be a a, a union, an American union. I, I remember when um, RFK was asked <laughs> when he was in New Hampshire at Porkfest, where. Oh yes, um, in, Carla. In, Carla asked him about yeah, about yeah. Oh, you were there. Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah, uh, and you know, you you go to a libertarian meeting, you better prepare yourself because something crazy is going to happen. <laughs> and so Carla said, "So would would you be okay if New Hampshire seceded?" And you know, I had introduced him, and you know, I'm aware of who libertarians are and how kind yeah. of delightfully insane they are. Uh, but I was mortified. I was like, oh, "Jesus Christ! Aren't there other responsible questions you could ask?" But but still, it elicited an answer, which was basically nostalgic and romantic. It's like, you know, I just I'm not here to break up the union. I'm here to bring us together as a, as a restore the old American and a very lovely answer in some ways. It's lovely. I just don't think it's realistic. <laughs> Whether it can happen or not is another matter. Yeah, or this is what bothers me about the RFK candidacy in general, just as an aside. I think it's basically uh, based on nostalgia, mm. uh, uh, and it's not really very. Um, his his nine is not not uh, functionally policy oriented. So, like anytime he he has a specific policy, it's not quite right, and there's something yeah. wrong with it. But yeah. his aspirations and his That's dreams true. are glorious. But you know, I mean, nothing we learn as from yeah. The he, wa he wants to he wants to go after the pharma industrial complex by reforming it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he wants to he wants to unplug the private interest from government agencies. I mean, I'm I'm against corporatism too. But I tell you, one way to get something even worse than corporatism is to um, fully eliminate uh, all the corruption. And leaving only abstract, power-wielding, insanely stupid, disconnected bureaucrats with total power over the population with no check on them from private industry at all. <laughs> that would actually make right. everything. The only thing worse with an, a corrupt a, a FDA that's captured by big pharma is an is independent a, one that has no <laughs> Yeah, I mean, let's just get rid of those agencies. Let's just... Yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible. I, I'm in, in a great and coalition. Not that far from it. I mean, no, I'm in a great coalition with a lot of anti-corporatists, as as you could imagine, and and yeah. and my in my and uh, and my post-lockdown iteration. Um, but yeah, this is this uh, this this vision of like how to fix the problem. Is uh, you can't something see beyond the the paradigm that that we're in? It's I mean to me the paradigm is the problem. It's this yeah. paradigm of state control and coercion. That's yeah. if you can't see beyond that, you're never going to get out of it. So yeah. And one reason I'm I'm appreciative of of 
some of the positions who are the, the non-libertarians who are critiquing corporatism right now is they they've they've taught me something I was really a little unaware of, which was the extent to which. So as libertarians, we always think the state is the great evil, but that that's creating these binaries between public and private, um, and then demonizing one and and valorizing the other um, can get you only so far. When you begin to notice conditions under which the state itself is being manipulated. Uh, primarily by private interests, and so that like plays with the libertarian mind. We don't we don't know what to do with that, but you see that in the case of pharmaceutical regulation, and yeah. for that matter, uh, you know, uh, military yeah. antitrust. I mean, yeah, military uh, imperialism. I mean, th these these are all being pushed by yeah wealthy, powerful, ruling class elites. Uh, whether they're in government or private industry or or nonprofit foundations, you know, uh, the evil is 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 present in all of them. Yeah, there's all kinds of people who profit from from coercion. And I think I think in the on sort of on the left, there's this tendency to think that libertarian means you're defending the corporate corporate entities or yep. you're defending those people. Um, yep. And I think some libertarians fall into that trap too, but that's not it. It's a system. It's a system yep. that we're defending. And, you know, the corporate state system benefits a lot of people who aren't in the state because they know how to use the state to, yep. to get their goodies. Yeah. They're driving the policy forward. I mean, that's yeah. actually one of the weirdest things I've discovered, you know, um, yeah. that the tech companies themselves that uh, uh, aspire uh, to have the state censor disinformation, and why? Because they're because they they want to destroy the competition. So if you can smear all your competition as, as spreading disinformation or use state power to go after them, you'll do it. So it's not the case that oh, poor innocent Facebook, uh, you know, was having to having to obey the demands of the CDC. That's not it at all. Facebook is begging the CDC, cut, crush my competition. Zuckerberg uh, has been calling for speech controls for even before COVID. I think he's yeah. been calling for that. Yeah, uh -huh. and and the media has got this desperate desire to survive right now. So yeah. uh, they'll, they'll use do anything. They'll do. It's not going to work. Uh, but they're doing anything possible to to get rid of. I, I need to read you this one quote. You'll laugh at this. Um, and then I, I, I will let you go. But I don't know if you saw the CNN report on what's going on with it, Texas at the border. Um, Basically, they're they're calling it, they're framing it as the Texas takeover now. So um, here's here's the CNN headline: Texas seized part of the U.S.-Mexico border and blocked federal border patrol agents. Um, and the whole it's a little video clip. And the whole the whole message is the reason border patrol can't get in there to do their job is because the Texas authorities have taken over. That's that's how they're. I just thought you'd get a kick out of that. Oh, it's even worse than that. I mean, the the newest line is that the U.S. government is trying to uh, stop Texas from permitting children to drown. Right, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah that's they just that's wanted to get in there and protect them. Yeah, protect like these three drowning three kids drown. For God's sake, Texas, what is wrong with you letting kids drown? You know, the federal government's here to save these poor people yeah, from drowning. That's why they wanted I to mean. Be so this is this is just deep state propaganda, but uh, mostly they're not covering it. And yeah, um, uh, we're now more, uh, ten days into the into the depths of the crisis, and there is a dearth of reporting on this at all from New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And various messages are being tested at um, alternative venues like um, Vox and mm. Wired. And the the message testing is you know the the saving kids from drowning kind of stuff you know that that uh, Texas has kicked out the border patrol that's trying to trying to uh, save the kids yeah I mean they're trying to see how stupid we are yeah and 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 you so this is the way this is the way the censorship industrial media captured media complex works is. Uh, they they're waiting to figure out because this is a problem because uh, you know 100 of the american people are are on the side of texas at this point it's just ridiculous so how do you message that you know if you're going to use your captured media to 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 defend the biden position well first you have to try out messaging and and your other kept um, places we know what those are now yeah uh, the rolling stone and um and wired 
and Vox and and so on. I mean, they, you know, these are basically sorry to put it this way, but they're basically CIA operations at this point. So they try out various messaging, and once it settles down, they can figure out something that's compelling. Then the New York Times will put it above the fold. Right, after it's been tested, yeah. 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 And then NPR will be all over it and so on. So, yeah. You, once you once you, uh, once you you get the decoder ring, everything makes yeah. sense. <laughs> this has been great. Um, yeah. Well, thank, and I want to thank you for your, for your open mindedness. I mean, you're, and just so anybody who's listening understands who you are, you're very, you know, highly sophisticated, very learned, uh, a lifetime of reading and reflection on f- fundamental issues uh, concerning human rights, liberties, and social organization. You are not an unsophisticated person in this realm, and I appreciate your uh, subtlety of thought, uh, your willingness to grapple sort of truthfully. Um, with empirical reality and come to terms with what that means for your life aspiration, which is to live freely and in cooperation with, with everybody else too. So um, having me on, um, being willing to have a completely honest discussion, um, I think says a lot about you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's, I think it's important, you know, and it can be tough sometimes, like if you're writing about things, it can be tough to take on an issue when you don't have an answer. And okay. yeah, I don't have an answer. I don't, I've got ideas, but yep. I don't have an answer. I understand. Well, let's go both keep, uh, stay critically minded, keep thinking and uh, doing, doing what we can to make the world a better place. Awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to What Then Must We Do, the podcast for those who understand that the state is the problem and are seeking solutions. For more episodes, go to brettany.substack.com. That's B-R-E-T-I-G-N-E dot substack.com and subscribe. Subscribe.